What is up? My name is Travis Chapel over from buildyournetwork.co and you are listening to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith. Let's get into it. That was awesome. And not shy at all. I can tell you're a podcaster. <laughs> People get all like nervous and stuff. It's like, oh my God, what do I do? Okay, that was perfect. Thank you. All right. So I have to hit stop on my Zoom recorder and then so I'll go away for a sec, but I'll be right back. All righty. All right. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Glenn Livingston, thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer and welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going really well. Thanks, Jeff. I've been looking forward to um, looking forward to coming. All right. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. So you are at NeverBingeAgain.com. So talk a little bit about the book and and what you got going on on your website. Oh well, the book is the result of a lifetime of personal struggles with binge eating and professional experience with, um, you know, with big food and industry and advertising and trying to figure out why it's so darn hard for people to stop overeating these days. Right. And, um, it's kind of a (laughs) different type of book. You'll understand why I want to tell you my story. Right. But it's, it's an unusual way to structure your mind to help you stick to the diet of your choice. So if you're constantly reading a book and making a plan on Monday morning after the weekend, and then by Monday afternoon you find that you've blown it, then we're going to talk very specifically about why that is neurologically and psychologically and what you can do to overcome that and um, think like a permanently thin person. I love it. I I love everything about it. I think we're going to have a really good time, and I'm going to learn a lot. Uh, so that's amazing. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So this is Vroom Vroom Veer. Let's, let's go back in time and talk about the young Glenn before maybe he was even a doctor. Where did you grow up? Um, I, was born, I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad was a psychologist. He was a captain in the Army. As a matter oh, of fact, okay. there, there oh, are so Army 17 psychotherapists in my family, psychologists, psychiatrists, social wow. workers, um, caseworkers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the counseling gene is definitely in the family. And yeah. it's, um, it's kind of funny as nobody really agrees on anything. So <laughs> if you come to a family reunion, everybody will fight. It's, it's not something you really want to hang out at. But psychology's but, like but, that. But, um, yeah. you know, when, when I was small, um, I guess I could start when I was about four. Okay. I remember hearing my dad on the radio and... I was really excited about it. I came running to my mom and I said, you know, mommy, mommy, daddy's on the radio. Why is he on the radio? And she said, well, he's a psychologist. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, that's someone who makes people happy when they're sad. And I said, well, why is he on the radio? And she said, because he wants to make a lot of people happy when they're sad. Yeah. (laughs) And I said, I want to do that. I want to do that. And wow. Holy cow. You know, I, I now, I now know that it's a lot more complicated than that, but, um, essentially, that was the blueprint for my life. I wanted to make a lot of people happy when they were sad. Mm. Oh. And um, 
I, I, you know, grew up in that family. I'll tell you some stories as we go along about how I think my personal food addiction was born. Yeah, for sure. Um, but um, I didn't really have any trouble with food until I was, and stop me if you want me to go in another direction, but until I was in my 20s. In my adolescence, I discovered exercise. And right, I'm right. six foot four and reasonably muscular. So if I worked out two and a half or three hours a day, I could eat anything and everything for the longest time. Right. I, I thought it was a superpower. I, you know, <laughs> multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, uh, donuts. Right. Um, I remember. Lattes. <laughs> I remember. Um, chocolate yeah. bars. What, what, whatever you can imagine. My, my, my sister is the kind of person who she, she takes um, two little squares of chocolate out of her purse and then she folds up the chocolate bar and she says, I'm going to save the rest until Sunday. And I, I don't know what's wrong with someone like that. I, I don't understand that. It's just not something that I could ever do. If I had two squares of chocolate, I always wanted, you know, four bars and to yeah. go wash it down in Starbucks like, or something like it's that. Like so you're not done yet. So I, I had a problem, but it didn't feel like a problem. Sure. It's what you would diagnose these days as exercise bulimia because I was technically purging with exercise. Oh, okay. But I didn't feel it until... I got into my early 20s and I got married and I was in graduate school. I was a very, became a very young doctor mm. and I would be, I, I didn't have the time to exercise, right. but I would still be sitting with patients thinking about when can I get over to the delicatessen and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the, <laughs> of the counter into it. Um, and it started to become a problem because not only was I gaining weight and developing blood levels that really terrified my doctor, just about every man in my family has had a heart attack on my mom's side. Wow. And my triglycerides were, oh, I have a test that says they were 826. I think they were above 1100 at one point. Wow. All I know wow. is that doctor after doctor was telling me that I was going to be dead by the time I was 35 if I when kept now, up the way I was going. Did, did your, did your but I found it really, really, really difficult to stop. And I would be... I'd be sitting with suicidal patients, and and you know how important it was for me to be a good psychologist. It was the most important thing in my life. I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient, and you have to be 100% present with suicidal people. You can't be daydreaming or, like I was, thinking right. about you know, pizzas and Pop-Tarts, and you just can't be thinking about that kind of stuff. You really have to be present with the client. Yeah. But I wasn't, and it really disturbed me. And um, I'd also be working with couples right after an affair, a lot of high-risk situations. Mm. Um, and so I, ha I had a real conflict, a conflict of integrity, um, really a professional conflict. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep these patients and, you know, then how I was going to make a living if I couldn't do that. And, and so it was a serious problem. And um, I took this psychological route to try to solve it because... I guess when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I went to some of the best psychologists in New York City. Okay. As you might imagine in my family, I knew who they were. Sure. And I went to a psychiatrist to try medication, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And, um, you know, I, I even funded my own study to figure that out. I'll come back to that in a minute because I left a piece out about my career. Okay. But um, while a lot of that work was really soulful, and I... You know, I'd go through periods where I would get a little bit thinner, but the obsession would never go away, and so I would gain the weight back. Although all that work was really soulful, and I'm glad that I did it. I really, 
I believe in psychology. I enjoy talking about my history and, you know, working in relationships and developing coping mechanisms. And I, I feel like I am the person who I am today in large part because I did all that. But it really didn't solve the problem. Right. And um, okay. so here, I'll, I'll give you an example about why. So the other piece of my career, because I was, um, I, I didn't, my, my ex-wife, she traveled for business a lot. And so I, I, we didn't have kids and I didn't commute. I always worked at home. So I had a lot of time in my hands and I wanted to do a lot of consulting for Fortune 100 companies. A lot of, a lot of big food companies, a lot of big um, advertise, a lot of big pharmaceutical companies. Things that I actually wish I didn't do now, but I was more interested <laughs> in the money back then. Right, right. Got and I knew how to conduct these studies. I knew how to develop and conduct these studies. And back in like 1999 or 2000, it was pretty cheap to get people to visit your website on the internet. Okay. And I knew advertising really well. So I was able to set up a study with 40,000 people and ask them all kinds of questions about um, their lifestyle. Like, were, were they satisfied with their love life? Were they satisfied with their, um, you know, with their business life, with their play life? And a lot of personality variables. And then I also asked them what particular foods they couldn't control themselves once they started eating. And I was looking for relationships between particular types of foods and particular types of emotional problems. Okay. And I found three things. And really, I was looking for a solution for myself. I mean, I, sure. I figured I was going to use it professionally, <laughs> but I was really looking for a solution for myself. And, and I found that there were three interesting patterns. People who suffered with chocolate addiction like I did, who couldn't control themselves once they, or felt they, could, they couldn't control themselves once they had a bite or two of chocolate, mm. they tended to, to feel more lonely or heartbroken in their life. Mm. They tended to say that they were not happy with their love life or that they were experiencing loneliness or that their heart had recently been broken. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I was in a kind of a bad marriage at the time. Okay. And, um, so, and you're feeling sad. So I thought, well, that makes a little bit of sense. And, and I went and I talked to my mother, who's also a therapist. And I asked her, I said, Mom, is there anything in my upbringing that would suggest that I go to chocolate when I feel lonely or heartbroken? And she got all sheepish and a little embarrassed and said, you know, you know Glenn, I love you very much, but... Um, when you were a year and a half, two years old, your dad was in the army. And um, I was very frightened that he was going to be taken to Vietnam because he was a captain and they needed captains there. And, you know, you were the only child. And, um, you know, they were starting to take people that had one kid, not people that had two kids. And, and at the same time, my father, your grandfather, was missing. And we didn't know what happened to him. And I was really, really depressed. And so when you came crying to me for food or even just for love, I often didn't have the wherewithal to give you what you needed. Sometimes I did, but often I didn't. And what I did was I got a refrigerator, a little refrigerator, put it on the floor, one of those little floor refrigerators. And I put a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in it. It's an old brand. I don't think it's around anymore. Bosco. <laughs> and when you came crying to me, sometimes I'd just say, Glenn, go get you Bosco. And you'd go over to the refrigerator and open up the 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 bottle, and you basically suck on it straight from the bottle and go into a sugar coma. Wow. And I thought, wow. Wow. That, that's it. 
that's the match that struck the fire. That's why I've got this raging chocolate addiction. And I thought that this was going to solve my problem. I figured now that I knew what was causing it, it would be easy to solve. But it turned out that there was this crazy voice in my head. Um, I'm not schizophrenic or anything, by the way. Right, there right. was a crazy set of thoughts in my head. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it wasn't an alternative voice. But there, there's this crazy voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And there's a great big hole inside of you. And until you figure out how to find the love of your life and fill up that lonely hole, we're just going to have to keep binging right on chocolate. As a matter of fact, we should do it worse. Yippee, let's keep, let's do it. <laughs> and I found very similar things with my patients. Um, wow. You know, the other two findings of that study were that people who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be more stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, floury things like bagels and pasta and um, even pizza, Mm. they tended to be more stressed at home. And everybody got all excited when they figured that out. But there was also this voice that said, you know, until we figure out how to get rid of this crazy boss, we're just going to have to keep on eating those, you know, Doritos and pretzels and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and, And so I began to suspect that it wasn't so much the need to be a detective you know, like I, I feel more forgiving of myself having had that conversation with my mother. I feel more forgiving of her having had that conversation. It was a good, soulful conversation to have had, but it really didn't solve the problem. And that's because once the match is lit, once, once the fire is lit, the fire rages all by itself. Mm-hmm. And the analogy is very appropriate because in our society, one of the things I learned working with big food and big advertising, there's really a perfect storm that makes it very, very difficult for people to, to stop overeating. Big food spends billions of dollars to engineer these hyper palatable, concentrated food-like substances, <laughs> like ridiculously concentrated sources of salt and oil and yeah. flour and yeah. sugar and excitotoxins and sodium and... Um, Things that, they're like levels of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us to handle. Mm, yes. And when you our brain. look at the studies, there's a whole set of rat studies back in the late 50s and early 60s by psychologists named Milner, Milner and Olds. And when you look at those studies, you find that um, when they wire a shortcut, when they short circuit the evolutionary mechanism, which is meant to produce pleasure in the brain, For example, by inserting electrodes into the pleasure center of a rat's brain and then wiring that electrode to a lever that the rat can push, Mm. well, it results in extreme self-neglect. The the rats will push that button thousands of times a day. Even if they're starving, they'll ignore healthy food. Even if they're nursing a pregnant, even if they're nursing a pup, they will um, abandon their pups to go press that lever. Even if they have to crawl over a painful electrical grid, they'll go press that lever. Wow. And what's happening in our society today is that, you know, for, for economic reasons, the incentives has a lot, have a line for big companies to engineer these pleasure buttons for you. And the studies have been repeated in different ways, but they've been repeated in humans and they're very similar effects. And, and what it says is that in the mammalian brain, when you provide a shortcut to pleasure that isn't really available in nature, 
that self-neglect results. And you can just think about drug addicts and right, that's you know, exactly how they start to not really want to take a shower and yeah. it doesn't really matter to them. And all that really matters is getting that particular form of pleasure. That's what's happening. But it gets worse because the, the packaging industry knows how to make that food look healthy. I, I remember talking to a VP of marketing for one of the um, biggest food bar manufacturers, one of the most popular food bar manufacturers. Mm. And he told me that the real marketing insight was that when they realized they should take the vitamins out of the bar, they should take it out of the bar because the vitamins were making it taste worse. And they should put all that money into focusing on the packaging instead. And they made it look vibrant and colorful. And, you know, evolution has set up our, our brains to respond to a variety of colors as a signal of a diversity of rich nutrients available. When you make a salad and you think of a bright, colorful salad, you know, with maybe some pieces of fruits on the side, um, our brains gravitate towards that because it's simu- it's sim- it signals the availability of nutrients in nature. Okay. And so, yeah. you know, the, pa- so the, the big packaging, packaging right. uh, industry is faking us out with that. And then big advertising has learned how to send 7,000 messages about food to us a year. And virtually none of them are about fruits and vegetables. And so basically, there are all these pleasure buttons that have been engineered and they're advertised with billions of dollars. And, and by the way, if you think that advertising doesn't affect you, think again, because what big advertising knows is that advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your resistance is down. When you think you're being sold to, right. then you evaluate things more critically. When a dancing bear comes on and entertains you, you don't evaluate them as critically and the message can come through more powerfully. Yeah. So there's know. a lot going on that you don't know about. And then the addiction treatment industry says, you're powerless over these impulses. The best you can hope to do is abstain one day at a time. You can't quit. You um, you need to focus on progress and not perfection. And you know, relapse is part of recovery. And, you know, basically they're saying, I bet you can't have just one. And (laughs) there are billions of dollars that go, including government funding that go into addiction treatment. And so you have, you have this perfect storm of forces in society that make it next to impossible for anybody to think straight about what's actually healthy for them. Mm. And, and, you know, thankfully there's a way out, but, um, Thankfully. But I realized that I was facing a bigger mountain than I thought I was facing. I realized that it wasn't going to be possible for me to love myself thin, um, that I needed an alternative model. (laughs) And um, I'll pause there in case you have any questions and I can talk about how I I found that alternative model. I um, want to get there for sure. How your listeners could use it if they want to. Yeah. So I, I, I know you just said go and I went for a long time. So <laughs> Jeff, do you have any questions? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but which, which all of that. Great. So thank you. Uh, but like, uh, my first thought was, um, when I got engaged to be married in my heart, now this was way back in 1990, I got engaged in 92 and then got married in 93. But immediately I went from like, I think I was somewhere around 175, and by the time I got married, and it wasn't that many months later, maybe like six, seven months later, um, I was up like north of 200, like 215. Uh-huh. 
Is that a real thing? Did you experience that too? Or is that, you know, in your research, did you find that that was just sort of like a... Oh, well, okay. So there, a, there a is a... thing. There's a, there's a complex relationship between emotions and overeating. Okay. And the... Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to say that emotions exert no influence on overeating. And it is a known thing that, you know, when men get engaged that they often will start packing out a few pounds because it's an entry point to a whole different area of life and there's a whole bunch of emotional ups and downs. Um, here's how the relationship between emotions and overeating works. Okay. When we burden our digestive system with a task that requires more effort than we really should, if we, when we really have to recover from a meal or we eat something that doesn't belong in our bodies, then the nervous system diverts most of its energy towards that digestion. And as a consequence, it doesn't have the ability to continue to conduct the emotions at the intensity that they would normally be experienced. As a consequence of that, there is a type of anesthetic effect that overeating provides. And that's why people say they're eating for comfort or they're eating comfort food. Mm. What that misses, however is that two things. First, that there's always a mediating voice. There's something in the head which makes it okay to do that, some justification or rationalization. And your point of leverage is with that voice more so than with the emotions. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Okay. But the other thing that's really important for your listeners to know is that there is a, another impact of the quote-unquote comfort food because most people are not, they're not binging and gaining weight on broccoli. They're binging and gaining weight on industrially processed foods. Right. Something and that had to be opened out of the, the package. Yeah. <laughs> and we just talked about how those foods are concentrated in such a way and artificially prepared to stimulate our pleasure centers in ways that evolution didn't. And another word for that is a drug. And the reason that's yeah, yeah. important exactly. for people to start thinking about Food some drugs. of these industrial foods as drugs right. is because we also eat to get high with food. We're, we're not just eating for comfort. See, if you think that you're just eating for comfort, then it'll lend you to be more loving to the part of you that's overeating and, and you know, destroying your health in some ways. Right. If you understand that you're also eating to get high with food, most people don't want to think of themselves like a drug addict and they're more motivated to do something about the way that they're thinking about food so they can, so they can stop. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I, I think, I think, um, I understand that more. I think if, if I look back at my, I've done both. I definitely have used food as a drug to say like turn off kind of like what you would use alcohol for. Mm -hmm. But it's not just that. There's some foods that make you high, too. Um, I think those are kind of harder to pin down because I don't think everybody's, like, thinking about, like, one. You know, it's pretty easy to think, okay, I'm going to come home from a long day of work. I'm feeling, like, tired and stressed, and I just want to veg out in front of the TV and have a beer and eat some nachos or something. I think we can all <laughs> identify with that pattern, right? So what, mm -hmm. is the, what, what pattern did you discover when people are using food to get high? I'm interested in that. Well, um, well, okay, the cup of you know, coffee, they, they, right? That would be they, a thing, right? There, there, aren't, 
there aren't nachos with cheese on the savannah. Like you, you couldn't right, pick that right, off of the tree. Yeah, right. And people weren't running up to cows and, you know, and um, them. Yeah. concentrating, grabbing their milk or just going underneath them and suckling from them and creating the cheese to go on top of that and then going to gather the spices and to stimulate the nervous system. Right. Now, I, I don't have any judgment. If people want to have nachos with cheese, that's totally fine. I, right. I think that everyone needs to define where the line is for them and what they want to do, you know, always, sometimes, never, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but I think that if people don't know that they are stimulating their systems in an artificial way when they do that and that there is some drug activity going on with that, then they're much more prone to do it more. Um, if you think that if you think that nachos and cheese are good for you, right. or um, you know that it's that it's not a drug, then you're much more likely to have a lot more of them. So you know, by all means, if you want to say you know I'm going to have a bag of nachos on on Wednesday night if I want to, then by all means do that. But don't don't fool yourself into thinking that there's not a consequences. Um, right. a there's not effect. a neurological change that you're experiencing that didn't exist, you know, a hundred thousand years ago. Um, so it, it is, it is kind of a drug. So I, I guess a more obvious example would be chocolate because everybody knows that chocolate's got theobramine and caffeine and, you know, sugar, all these serotonin stimulating, Milk. um, chemicals. Yeah. But, um, you know, just plain old, plain old sugar, the plain old sugar that you put in your coffee is a drug. It, it concentrates the absorption into the stream, into the bloodstream in a much greater way than people are used to, um, you know, or would be used to in nature. So yeah. And sugar is everywhere um, too, right? And that's sugar is like in, in things where you wouldn't think lots of sugar would be like, uh, like in ketchup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. why is that all in there? I learned that big time. I used to think I was in love with French fries. It turns out I was just using the French fries as a, as a ketchup delivery system. I, I used to put like about a half a bottle of ketchup on right. a big egg white omelet. So <laughs> I, I you get you it, mean. right? Yeah. So, yeah, when you go to like a place like Starbucks, right, I've noticed this. It's like if you try to find something that doesn't have a whole lot of artificial sugar in it to eat there, uh, good luck, right? Yeah. It's, it's nigh impossible. Unless, you'd have to like, you know, special order maybe, well, something that, no, everything has bread, so that's bad. <laughs> it's, you end up drinking like juice or maybe like black coffee or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our society has adapted to things that are really unnatural and not so wholesome and you know every major health organization says eat more fruits and vegetables and it's it's not a shock to realize where you can find health if you really want it and that a lot of the things that we eat are compromises for convenience and taste and all that kind of thing so um yeah it's you, you can find sugar everywhere and i find when people try to get off of sugar it's much easier to um, start with an inclusive list rather than an exclusive list. I agree with that. So yeah. start adding for things. example, I might say the only sweet taste that I'll ever eat again are whole fruit berries and stevia or something like that. Okay. And some people will add artificial sweeteners to that and other people will add you know, certain forms of, um, of the oses 
um, or they'll allow they'll allow it as long as it's not listed on the label above the fourth ingredient. But um, the advice I give people who are trying to define what sugar is for them is to very clearly define it, first of all, but to define it inclusively rather than exclusively. What are the sweet tastes that you will allow in your diet as opposed to what are you trying to, to avoid? Right. Oh, it yeah. becomes very confusing otherwise. Yeah, I, I agree. So, okay, so what sort of things did started working, you know, during your, for well, you? Well, okay. So <laughs> I started to look at alternative addiction treatment because I had also been to Overeaters Anonymous and um, kind of went down the traditional road with 12-step programs and, and – um, and it wasn't really working for me. It would work for a little while, and then I'd lose it. And then I looked at the research, and I saw that the only research on it suggested that they were either at parity or worse than doing nothing at all. And I said, well, that's not good. So I started looking at, looking at alternatives, and I came across a guy who worked mostly with drugs and alcohol, not really with food. Um, his name was Jack Trimpey, and he wrote a book called Rational Recovery. Very good book. And by the way, I tell people, don't use my stuff to recover from the black and white addictions like drugs and alcohol or cigarettes. Mm. Use his stuff because he's got you know, 20 years behind him right. doing that. Um, mine is very specifically for, for food. Um, but, but what was different about his model was that he said that you really can't love, your, you can't love yourself out of an addiction. You just can't because the lizard brain looks at something in the environment and this is the oldest part of our brain, the brainstem that evolved millions and millions of years ago. Right. And when it looks at something in the environment, it's got a really quick way of assessing it. It's like, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? <laughs> eat, mate, or kill. There's no love in the lizard brain. The lizard right. brain doesn't care right. about tribe and family and um, society or you know, creativity or music or art or long-term goals. The lizard brain is just eat, mate, or kill. Sure. The mammalian brain, the emotional brain, evolved on top of the lizard brain in part to inhibit it for the considerations of the tribe. Um, you know, mammals exist, exist in tribes and herds and families, and it was of evolutionary value to consider that. And so we developed all of these emotions that connect us to others. Sure. And then there's the logical brain at the very top, um, which says, is this in concert with my long-term goals and strategies and um, where we can kind of behave like human beings, where we can affect plans and, um, and not only care about other people, but coordinate with them to accomplish goals together. And what happens in addiction is that your lizard brain has been hijacked. The survival instincts of eat, meat, and kill from the lizard brain are basically hijacked by the pleasure buttons. And so this is why you forget what your best laid plans were on Monday afternoon when you were really certain of it on Monday morning at the moment of impulse. Right. And so what, what Trimpey said was that you really need a method for separating from the lizard brain, from for developing a sense of... Um, like disease or disgust or contempt for the lizard brain at the moment of impulse. And so this is the embarrassing part for me because here's what I did. I decided that my lizard brain was going to be my inner pig. 
you don't have to call it an inner pig. This is just a mental construct. I want people to be nice to real pigs in the world. But <laughs> I happened to, I was really doing this more for myself than anybody else. And I yeah. happened to call it my inner pig. Okay. And then I made a really clear line in the sand because I figured, okay, the problem is that food is a very squishy concept. Um, how am I going to eat and when am I going to eat? And, you know, there's research that says we have to make 300 decisions a day about what we're going to, what we're going to eat. So I said, I'm going to have to simplify this if I want to treat it the same way that he was treating alcohol. So I said, um, let's say I'm, I'm never going to eat chocolate on a weekday again. And that was black and white. I could still have it on the weekends if I wanted to, but I was never going to have it during the week. Okay. And I decided that chocolate itself was going to be pig slop. If it, if it was during the week, chocolate was going to be pig slop. Okay. And wow. whatever the pig said, you know, if I'm online at Starbucks and the pig says, hey, chocolate grows from cocoa beans and cocoa beans come from a plant and therefore chocolate's a vegetable, right? Any crazy <laughs> rationalization like that, that was going to be pig squeal. And whenever I heard, whenever I had a craving, I would say, well, I don't crave that, the pig does. And the pig is squealing for its slop and I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Wow. And as ridiculous as that sounds for it, wow. a sophisticated psychologist who's yeah. done millions of dollars of consulting <laughs> um, and there's all kinds of accomplishments behind him, the way that I solved the problem for myself, not, not immediately, required a lot of finessing. Over time, I kept the journal for five years, which eventually became the book. But wow. the way I solved the problem was I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And the reason that crude method works, I, I know now, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The reason it works is that it provides you with those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse, the moment of temptation, to wake up and remember your human goals and decide what you want to do. So it gives you, it gives you the opportunity to make the right decision. I can't force people to make the right decision, but at least you don't have this unconscious experience of being... Um, being driven, compulsively driven to get that chocolate bar and eat it before you know what happened. Mm. Because you're now jumping back up into your human brain, you're not letting the lizard brain run rampant. And when you have the notion that you're supposed to love yourself more at the moment of impulse, when I was saying to myself, oh, I'm really craving chocolate when I was at the Starbucks, I must be feeling very lonely. You know, poor me, I think I will get the chocolate, you know, until I can figure out how to deal with that loneliness. What happens is you open yourself up to the lizard brain rather than distancing yourself from it. And that's what worked for me. I, I came up with a system for creating more lines in the sand and developing a whole food plan. And um, But essentially, it was like, I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and that worked for you. And yeah. I'll stop there in case you have questions, Jeff, because I'm... I know you get me up on a soapbox and I keep going with this stuff. So I'll stop. No, for but a I, you know, I love it because a lot of this, uh, have you ever heard of the, uh, the four hour body and the slow carb diet? Yeah. Okay. So that is sort of like my chosen thing to say I do <laughs> that I kind of screw up, but for the most part, you know, I, I, I like to say I'm pretty compliant, but it has built in cheat days, you know? So like, mm -hmm. uh, and once a week, Usually it turns out to be, you know, the weekend, you know, um, that's when I can eat my pig slop, you know, with not quite reckless abandon. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. how far you read into the book, but like first he'll say you can eat, you know, like, uh, 
go crazy, right? But then like if you keep reading, he'll say, and here's the strategies to like while you're binging, you know, to, to try to, you know, here are a couple of cheats and hacks and things that you can try um, that will help you keep the weight off while you're binging. So, um, but, you know, I've found that like the easiest thing for me is to really make healthy eating super easy, right? So it's like I buy a bunch of salads, that's lunch. I buy a bunch of like, um, like rotisserie chickens are basically my, my, uh, my meat choice from, you know, where, what, you know, insert grocery store here, you know, that's like dinner. Uh, and then breakfast is like eggs and ham and, you know, I'm not supposed to have, well, no, I'm pretty good at not doing cheese, but, uh, you know, lots of protein and lots of greens, uh, for, for breakfast. And then, you know, throw in some, if I want to munch, then it's like, uh, carrots and hummus. Right. So overall, Monday through Friday, I'm pretty damn clean. Right. So I like it because it's easy. Now, did it went in, in your in your experimentation on yourself? Did you find that to help, too? Yes. OK. Uh, there was a whole bunch of things you said that I could come. Yeah, on. So the please. short answer is yes, I did find it <laughs> helpful. OK. In, in my scheme of the world, I wouldn't call it a cheat day. I. Okay. I ask people to create a food plan and to take ownership of it. And it can be one that you read in a book as long as you really think through all the rules and you know why you're following them. Okay. Um, but then I also ask them to define where they want to loosen those rules, if at all. Okay. And so a lot of people will say, you could think of this like an archery target. It's got a series of rungs. There's the bullseye, and then there's one rung out, and there's two rungs out. Right. And I ask them to very de- clearly define where the bullseye is, and then I ask them to very clearly define the rung. So, um, you know, the everyday bullseye might be, I never eat chocolate, but the weekend bullseye might be, um, you know, I allow myself one chocolate dessert at a restaurant with a friend or something like that. Okay. Or... Maybe there's a rung out from that that says I can have as much as I want on the Sunday once a month. And I do find that within reason, people do well with those types of safety valves. Now, the caveat would be that for some people in some circumstances, never is a lot easier than sometimes. Chocolate okay. happens to be like that for me. Okay. So I, I actually never eat chocolate and I won't ever do it again because you I just, already know, um, right? It starts like I said, I'm, I'm not the kind of person like my sister is. I can't have two squares and put it away for Sunday. I get it. I've tried six ways to Sunday to make that possible. It just doesn't work for me. Mm. And on the other hand, I, I can have certain types of, um, you know, I could have certain types of flowers or rice or, you know, different things that I don't have every day which um, I can loosen up on weekends or, you know, at, at restaurants with friends and things like that. So the idea is by the time people come to me, they usually have had experiences with healthy days and not so healthy days. They've had experiences where they know there are certain foods they can control in certain situations and others that they can't. And if you just put the work in to think through the kind of person you'd like to be around that food in that situation, it's entirely possible to do it. Um, what I like to say is that character trumps willpower. And when we're, when we're thinking through 
you know, I will, I will only ever eat chocolate again on the weekends. What you're really doing is making a statement of character that says, I'm not the kind of person who eats chocolate during the week. And people will say, well, how can you do that? But the truth is that we make decisions of character all the time. And so if I ask people, if you, if you go into a diner and the waitress sits you down at the table and she says, sit here for a second, I'll be right back, I just have to go get the menu. And as she's leaving, you notice that there's a $10 bill on the table. And there's not a video camera, there are no windows, there's nobody up at the front counter, nobody would see you take it if you wanted to take it. The waitress didn't even realize it was there. Mm. Do you take that $10 bill? And virtually everybody will tell me, no, they wouldn't do that. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, well, I'm not a thief and that belongs to the waitress. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, so as a matter of character, you've decided that you're not the kind of person who steals money from other people, even if you're 100% sure you can get away with it. And they say yes. And then their eyes light up and you say, so you mean I can do that with food also? And they say, yes, you can decide what kind of person you want to be with particular foods in particular situations. And the reason that's so important is because all of the research tells us now that willpower is a fatigable muscle. There are only so many decisions that you can make over the course of a day. I've heard that. That's why so many people blow it in the evening. Um, If you try to follow a guideline that says, you know, I don't eat chocolate 90% of the time, but about 10% of the time I do. The problem with that is that every time you're faced with the chocolate bar in front of you, you've got another decision to make. So if you use a guideline like that, even if it's a good guideline, even if it points towards the North Star, it's still a decision that fatigues your willpower every time you're faced with it. Right. On the other hand, if you say, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again, you have made all your decisions Monday through Friday, your willpower doesn't get fatigued all day long. You don't have to make all those decisions. Mm. You're left over with a reserve at night to deal with something else. Yeah. So um, I forgot exactly how I got there, but I guess I wanted to make that point. (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. It works. (laughs) I probably asked you a question. I don't remember that either. But yeah, 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 we were talking about like uh, the binge sort of situation, I think, you know, and uh, And whether we needed a a safety valve. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And so so the real answer is, I think we need well-defined safety valves. Okay. I I think... um, anything goes tends to be dangerous for people. But if you have a well-defined, well-thought-through safety valve where your decisions have been made beforehand, I find that people do much better with that. So now, uh, in your experience, the folks that like, all right, so I know like the reason why Tim Ferriss programmed in the, you know, the binge day was he thought that, you know, it's better to plan it than not plan it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you agree with that idea. Okay. Same thinking. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. That makes sense because it's like, it's, if you, you get into this, there's a psychology of deprivation almost, right. Where you think, you know, even if it's the worst thing ever, (laughs) you just think you, it's almost like you're wearing out some sort of like what you're talking about, the will, willpower points or the willpower muscle is getting overloaded if you don't. Yeah, th- th- relax there's a, there's a little a bit. Good, right. There's a good way to fight the psychology of deprivation, though. Okay. Um, in addition, I, I, I do believe in having safety valves and very well-defined second and third rungs of your archery target. But when your pig tells you that, oh, you can't avoid chocolate all the time, or you can't avoid chocolate during the week, you know, you're going to be too deprived, and all these other people are are you know normal and they're enjoying themselves. Well, if you step back. And you ask people, 
why might they like to avoid chocolate during the week? What, why might they like to never eat chocolate during the week again? And you ask them to envision what their life would be like in a year if they didn't have chocolate during the week. And most of them will tell you that you know, they will have lost weight and they're going to feel more confident in themselves and they will be a little more social because they feel in control of their you know, diet better and maybe they're going to fit into a dress that they couldn't fit into or um, they'll have more energy to you know, hug their kids and go hiking with them or something like that. Mm. And you, you really go into detail about what that future looks like. And then you go ask them about what are they going to be deprived of if they never have chocolate during the week again. See, then what happens is the, the flip side of that question becomes evident. What will the pig deprive you of if you do continue to have chocolate right. during the week? Right, right. Yeah, and huge. life is always a choice between what you're going to deprive yourself of if you don't indulge in the short run and what your pig will deprive yourself of if you do indulge in the short run. Right. And when you can evaluate the totality of that deprivation trap, you can often make a better decision much more easily because you realize that you want the longer term goals a lot more than you want the shorter term goals. The last thing that you can tell yourself in those situations, because sometimes what happens is people are out with friends and they feel like a pariah. They feel like an outcast, like everybody else is drinking or everybody else is eating cake and they're not eating cake. Hmm. Well, it's really hard step at back work. <laughs> and ask yourself for a second, do you care about these people? And if you care about these people and you look at the statistics of the way that most Americans deteriorate and die eventually, you know, in their late 50s to early 60s, we have this incredibly high incidence of heart attacks and strokes and cancer and diabetes and right. life becomes progressively more miserable, more and more medication, less and less, less and less freedom. And a lot of these things are diet reversible or diet preventable. And so if you care about these people, somebody has to go first in changing things. If you just do what everybody else does, you're going to get what everybody else gets. And so are they. But if you mm. love your family, if you love your friends, then somebody has to lead by example. Someone has to be a leader and, and show them the way. And people are much more influenceable, not by you arguing about whether this is healthy or not. They're much more influenceable when they see your results and you talk to them compassionately about what they want to achieve. Mm, so right. be a leader. Um, don't, 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 judge, don't accept right. the fact that just because they're doing it, that means they have to do it forever. Um, ask yourself if you care about them and um, lead the way. No, that's, that's really good advice. That was going to be my next question was going to be, you know, we have like friends and family, uh, people that we love in our lives and we know that, you know, they're overweight and that it's killing them, right? It, they're already there. <laughs> and, you know, I, I struggle to find ways to help people. So I can point them to your book at uh, com. And uh, so we can find, like, it looks like you can get a free version of the book, right? Yeah, I, I, I set up a whole bunch of free things to help people because I'm trying to influence as many people as I can. We also sell stuff. But um, <laughs> if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the reader's bonus button, the big red button, okay. you can get a copy of the Kindle or the Nook or the PDF for free. Oh, nice. What you also get more importantly are a set of free food plan templates, starter templates for any diet whatsoever. So we did our best to show you examples of the rules people might use for um, you know, low carb versus paleo versus 
vegetarian versus vegan versus point counting. We, we did our best to think through the uh, set of starter rules you could use to, um, you know, to create your own, your own template. Mm-hmm. And because this, because this all sounds so weird and harsh and abstract, a lot of you might be thinking, I don't have a pig inside me. <laughs> well, in theory and abstract, it sounds really harsh, but the truth is when you implement it, it's a very compassionate thing to do. And I'm actually a very compassionate guy. I'm a compassionate coach, a compassionate therapist. So I, I recorded quite a lot of sessions and I distribute them um, for free if you just sign up for that, um, sign up for the free copy of the book. So right, right. yeah, it's at neverbingeagain.com. Just click on the big red more button and sign up for the free reader bonuses and all that great stuff is yours. And then if you want personal coaching or physical copies of the book, you can pay a little bit for that too. So as we wrap up, I want to uh, just leave folks with, so you were obese, right? Yeah, I was, um, I was about 55 pounds more than I am now. It's, okay. I wasn't muscular at that time because I wasn't exercising at all when I got to my heavier. So it actually a little bit, it should be a little bit more, but, um, yeah, I was obese. I wasn't yeah. a man anymore. Right. Right. See, so, for a long time. <laughs> so w- w- you are, you're speaking from, uh, from experience. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I didn't even know this book was going to be popular. I, you know, I've, I've got a lot of experience in marketing and I, I didn't write a whole marketing plan. I didn't do a lot of research. Right. I, I was part of a small publishing company and my CEO asked me, um, if there was anything I ever thought about publishing and I said, Oh, I've got this stupid journal that I kept to stop overeating. And he said, that's brilliant. Can I see it? And he said, I want you to turn it into a book. Wow. So I took like a month and I turned it into a book and I didn't think anything was going to happen with it. And we published it, and it like hovers around the number one book for um you know downloads on the on the Kindle. Wow! Um, for for weight loss now, it's crazy. Wow! So Eleven hundred reviews. It's it's insane. See, that's when you know you've hit something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a crazy pig inside me. <laughs> right. No, you know, it's like it's, you, um, you, it, my you, mom's not so proud of me, but you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Hey, I love it. You know, I get it that it, it might, you know, from a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a, a professional reputation point of view. It's like, Ooh, did I really <laughs> I get it? Yeah. Right. Right. No, yeah. but it works. Right. So you have to go with what works. Exactly. And that's not, like exactly. you said, it's not going to work for everybody. It makes dating everybody. a little difficult. I'm dating an eating disorder therapist <laughs> right now. And she's not quite sure what to tell her friends. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. So thanks for being here. And I appreciate you uh, hanging out with me and, and sharing your story. I appreciate it. Very good. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer.